Section 48 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombal. Homicide, Part 25, The Brantley-Eskridge Romance, Part 1. In the Circuit Court of St. Louis County, Missouri, February term, 1871, suit was brought by Mrs. Minerva S. Brantley of Selma, Alabama, against the Travelers Insurance Company, for recovering the sum of $10,000 under an accident policy written upon the life of John Harris Brantley for the benefit of plaintiff in the action. In her complaint, plaintiff states that she is now the widow and was the wife of John Harris Brantley, who, on the fourth day of December 1870, was, without fault, cause of provocation, shot and killed by a party or parties unknown to her. The insurance company, in its answer to the plaintiff's petition, admits issuing the policy referred to, and admits that Brantley was killed on the fourth day of December 1870, but denies that the shooting and killing was not the fault of the plaintiff. And for a further answer to plaintiff's petition, defendant alleges that prior to the execution of the policy of insurance upon which this suit is brought, the plaintiff and one Joseph N. Eskridge unlawfully and wickedly agreed, conspired, and confederated together to cheat, swindle, and defraud defendant out of the sum of money in said policy mentioned. And that, with that purpose in view and to that end, a secret agreement Understanding a conspiracy was entered into between plaintiff and the said Eskridge, whereby an insurance for a large amount was to be effected and procured upon the life of said Brantley, in defendant's company, and in other insurance companies for the benefit of the plaintiff, and that during the continuance and life of said policies of insurance, so obtained by them, the said Brantley should be assassinated and killed, or his life taken in some other violent manner, and after the recovery of the amounts for which the life of said Brantley was insured, plaintiff and the said Eskridge should share their ill-gotten gains with each other. That on or about the second day of December, 1870, and pursuant to said agreement and conspiracy, entered into, as aforesaid, between plaintiff and the said Eskridge, he, the said Eskridge, at the solicitation and request of plaintiff, left his home in Selma, in the state of Alabama, armed with a shotgun, and proceeded to Squawkalock, in the state of Mississippi, where the said Brantley then was. That said Eskridge reached said town of Squawkalock on the morning of December 4, 1870, and after learning upon inquiry that said Brantley was at the railroad station of said town of Squawkalock, he, the said Eskridge, proceeded to said station, and then and there 
pursuant to said agreement and conspiracy between plaintiff and Eskridge, brutally assassinated, shot, and killed the said Brantley. This answer of the defendant insurance company to the plaintiff's petition has no uncertain sound, no equivocal wording. If the allegations therein were true, the plaintiff richly deserved the extreme penalty of the law. If not true, the defendant could not be punished too severely for preferring such an accusation of crime. An early investigation of the facts and circumstances surrounding this case was entered upon, and a commission to take depositions in the cause quickly followed. It was learned that General Brantley, the father of John Harris Brantley, the insured, was a wealthy planter, formerly residing in the vicinity of Selma, Alabama. He possessed large landed and personal estates, and before the emancipation held an extensive property in slaves. His family, a few months before his death, consisted of three sons and one daughter, the latter a young widow. John was the oldest son and had passed the age of 40 years. He was married but had no children. He had been devoted to pleasure and vice while a young man, had spent large sums in dissipation, and had incurred heavy liabilities, which his father had to provide for. This state of affairs so exhausted the patience and forbearance of the old gentleman, who died in 1869, that he cut off the prodigal from further benefits. More than a year prior to his death, he conveyed, by deeds, all his property to his two younger sons and his daughter, leaving John wholly unprovided for. At the time the property was deeded away, John was living with his wife near Pensacola, Florida, and had neither business, property, nor credit. Soon after these conveyances had been recorded, he returned to the Brantley Plantation and had an ugly quarrel with his father and family. He sought legal advice and employed General John T. Morgan as his counsel. At the earnest request of the father, a compromise was effected by settling about 500 acres of land upon Minerva, John's wife, the plaintiff in the action, against the insurance company. Eventually, a young man named J.P. Howard, who had lost an arm in the Confederate service, came to live on a plantation adjoining the plantation of John H. Brantley and his wife Minerva. From causes incidentally growing out of the family feud referred to, Howard and John H. Brantley were on unfriendly terms. To such a point did Brantley's hostility finally increase that he threatened the life of Howard, and they both went armed for each other, expecting an encounter at any time. In the spring of 1869, Howard and Brantley became involved in one or two quarrels, and a few days afterwards, Howard was found dead in a swamp about a mile distant from Brantley's house. A jury of inquest was held upon the dead body, and the finding of the jury was that Howard came to his death from wounds inflicted by a shotgun in the hands of some person to the jury unknown. But, from the evidence, suspicion strongly attached to John H. Brantley. The coroner issued a warrant upon the finding, 
and Brantley was arrested and taken before a justice of the peace for a preliminary examination. General Morgan was Brantley's counsel at this time. Brantley was bound over in a bond of $10,000 to appear at the next term of the city court for Selma, Dallas County, Alabama, to answer an indictment to be found by the grand jury. When brought into court, however, the indictment was quashed on motion of General Morgan, the prisoner's attorney, on the ground that it was found by the grand jury upon evidence taken by the committing magistrate at the time of preliminary examination and without any other evidence. The laws of Alabama required the judge, in a case where an indictment was quashed, to hold the accused in custody or require him to give bail to answer a new indictment for the same offense. The judge, who was not a lawyer by profession, disregarded the law in this respect and made no order at that time to hold the defendant Brantley in custody or to require bail to answer to a new indictment, nor did the solicitor make any motion for such an order. Immediately after the indictment was quashed, Brantley, upon hasty consultation apart with his attorney, walked out of the courthouse and made his escape. He went directly to the railway station, where he took the cars from Meridian, Mississippi. Changing cars at Meridian, he went north on the Mobile and Ohio Railroad to a small place known as Guacalac, where he quietly took up his abode. While there, he was in correspondence with his counsel, as will appear by the following letter, which was produced in evidence by the defendant in the course of the suit. Selma, November 5, 1869. Mr. John H. Brantley. Dear Sir, I hear nothing said now about your case. I don't know that any bill has been found. But the stir that was made about the matter during the circuit court leaves no doubt in my mind that the bill was found. The studied secrecy of their movements is such that I think they mean mischief. You want to settle at some place where you will be content to live and will not be likely to be disturbed so that you can go to work and build up. I cannot think it safe for you to return to Alabama nor to live so close as in Mississippi. Yours truly, John T. Morgan. After Brantley's escape, the matter was again brought before the grand jury, and it was generally believed that an indictment was found. The following letter, which was proved to be in the handwriting of General Morgan, alludes to this subject and also to the Brantley family feud. Mrs. Brantley, Dear Madam, Write to Mr. Brantley that I have information I believe to be reliable, that the grand jury have found a bill against him. I feel satisfied also that his place of abode is known. It may be, and I believe it probable, that persons interested will try to find him. I need not advise you what to do in the matter. I wish to see you soon in reference to a claim of your husband's against his father's estate. I am inclined to take steps to collect it, if it can be done. Very respectfully, September 18, 1869, John T. Morgan. Mrs. Brantley forwarded General Morgan's letter enclosed in the following letter, 
written to her husband. My darling husband, after writing you yesterday morning, I received the enclosed note from General Morgan in the evening, which I send to you immediately for you to act upon. It is just what I have been expecting. I cannot at present advise you what course to take. Only for mercy's sake, keep on the lookout and out of the way. I believe, as General Morgan does, that it is known where you are. I will go in and see Morgan tomorrow and advise with him as to what is best for you to do. Your devoted wife, M.B. The result of Mrs. Brantley's interview with her legal advisor is made known in the following letter addressed to her husband. My dear husband, I saw Morgan today, and his advice to you is for you to change your abode until we can see or find out if a warrant will be issued immediately for your arrest. He says you must not let them arrest you, and do not let anyone know where you are for the present, and by all means, keep away from the railroad. I will try and have it arranged with the sheriff where you are, not to arrest you, nor let you be arrested, if he receives any warrant. But you must be cautious how he is approached, for there is great danger of it getting out, as he might let it be known up here that you are down there. We will soon know what they intend doing, and then I will advise you as to what is best to be done. Your true and devoted wife. That Mrs. Brantley appears to have continued actively alert is evident by her letters to her husband during this period of his voluntary exile. She sends him little comfort in the following letter. My darling husband, I understand how its brother has written to someone here inquiring about your case and is going to revive the case again and says he is determined to find out who killed his brother. I do not know how true it is, but I am going to find out more about the matter and will let you know. There is no mistake about the fact that we have secret enemies here who are working to do us all the harm they can. But I am on the lookout for them and keep prepared for them. You need not give yourself any unnecessary alarm about this matter, but only be prepared and keep away from the cars. Someone here was making inquiries about my absence, wanted to know where I was and how long I was going to stay, and if I had gone to see you. But it is of no use for them to try to find out my movements, for I am too prudent and too cautious for them. I tell everybody you are in Texas. I am sometimes fearful that your whereabouts may be found out. If I were you, I would live as secluded as possible and not go to town often, but there is always someone on the cars from Selma. With much love, your devoted wife, MSB. The reader will remember that the insurance company, in its answer to the plaintiff's petition, alleges that Mrs. Brantley wickedly conspired and confederated with one Joseph N. Eskridge to cheat and defraud the company and to that end they affected a large sum of insurance upon the life of Brantley, and then, pursuant to the secret agreement and conspiracy between them, they brutally assassinated him. 
This Mr. Eskridge, who was destined to play so conspicuous a part in the outgrowth of the tragic affair of which mention has been made, was a young man of pleasing address and of more than ordinarily fine appearance at the time of these occurrences. He had been a merchant's clerk in Selma and ultimately opened a store of his own. But having more beauty than brains, his mercantile career soon ended in bankruptcy. He was married to a young woman of good family, who owned and resided upon a plantation adjoining the Brantley Place. After his failure in business, he returned to this plantation with his family, consisting of his wife and two children, and was residing there at the time of the Brantley feud. While Brantley was under indictment for the murder of Howard and was secretly hiding from justice, Eskridge appears to have been on terms of affectionate intimacy with Mrs. Brantley. This lady was of that rare type of personal beauty found only in those possessing a fair complexion, light golden hair, and lustrous black eyes. In features and form, she was strikingly beautiful, and she is described as being brilliant in conversation, fascinating in her manners, and of a very affectionate disposition. By practical people, she was considered too sentimental. Eskridge was but two years older than Mrs. Brantley, and it appears in evidence that these pretty counterparts sympathetically gravitated toward each other. Mrs. Brantley's husband was not only under indictment for murder, but by reason of his riotous living, his long-continued excesses, his pecuniary and family troubles, he had become prematurely old. Although but little more than forty years of age, he was very gray, and though formerly stout and robust, he was now sallow, lean, gaunt, and shrunken away. Broken down with protracted dissipation, he presented the appearance of at least sixty years. While Brantley was a fugitive from justice, and Mrs. Brantley was residing on her plantation, the five hundred acres previously mentioned, Eskridge was at his wife's plantation, about two miles' distance from Mrs. Brantley's house. Gradually, a suspicious intimacy grew up between them. We learn in the evidence of a brother-in-law of Eskridge that during the summer of 1870, Eskridge was neglecting his family and spending a great deal of his time at Mrs. Brantley's place and in her company. This witness and another brother-in-law of Eskridge, named Collins, talked the matter over, and witness advised Collins to remonstrate with Eskridge and persuade him to put a stop to his intimacy with Mrs. Brantley. That persistence in his misconduct would bring disgrace upon the whole family, as everybody in the neighborhood was talking about it. This caused of coming to the knowledge of the virtuous lady, she was prompted to write and send to the witness the following outburst of indignation. John H. McElwain, I understand you have been slandering me in the grossest manner. I warn you that my husband is much nearer than you are aware of, and when you least expect it, he will hold you personally responsible for the base, malicious lies that you were circulating about me. My husband is fully aware of all my actions and movements and fully approves them. M.S. Brantley, 
October 28, 1870. The hollowness of this lady's pretense was fully exposed by witnesses of a criminal intimacy. An old and faithful family servant, Willis, in the course of his testimony, made very damaging revelations, but they are too voluminous to reproduce from the record. We have only room for brief reference to some of the material points. He testified that in driving Mrs. Brantley in her carriage to Selma, Eskridge constantly rejoined and accompanied her, meeting and parting with unrestrained and significant demonstrations in the presence of the witness. That sometimes Eskridge called with his buggy and took Mrs. Brantley riding, and that even in the streets of Selma, they were reckless as to any concealment of their guilty attachment. That upon certain occasion, when they were detected in the woods in flagrante delicto, Eskridge purchased the silence of witness with a bribe. Willis had lived in the Brantley family from his birth and had been their slave for many years. He was devotedly faithful to his mistress, but he felt it his duty, as he says in his evidence, to remonstrate with her upon her growing shamelessness, whereupon Eskridge threatened his life with a pistol. Upon the restoration of amicable relations, Eskridge declared to Willis that he loved Mrs. Brantley and would die for her and would not give her up for her husband or anyone else. Confidence between the couple and Willis having been reestablished, he was sent to Mississippi to bear to John H. Brantley some lying messages and to make the false plea of sickness in excuse of Mrs. Brantley's failure to rejoin her husband in his exile in accordance with a promised arrangement. End of section 48